preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't we take our Bibles and open up to 1 Peter. Uh, we're back in 1 Peter uh, today, this afternoon, and uh, we're in 1 Peter 3. And uh, this week, uh, we finally get to the verse that the ladies have been waiting for regarding the, the wise and honorable practice of a godly husband. Uh, the wise and honorable practice of a godly husband. And even though this is only a, a one-verse summary of the husband's responsibility to his wife, Uh, Peter's not letting the guys off easy. It's a a one-verse summary that's filled with conviction and correction and uh, hopefully some encouragement along the way for our brothers as well. And uh, as is true with all of the Word of God, uh, there is something that is profitable here for all of us, Uh, whether we're married or single, male or female. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness. And this is Scripture. Uh, So there's something profitable here for everybody who's here. Uh, All of Scripture is profitable. It's useful. It's beneficial. It's good for you to hear this. Uh, The principles that we see within this text are principles that we can practice in a general way. Uh, So there's something here for all of us. Uh, There's also uh, something here that's connected with the surrounding context, as we've been looking at this context in in Peter, and it's not disconnected from that. Uh, Right there at the beginning of this uh, chapter, uh, or the verse in uh, uh, verse 7, chapter 3 and verse 7, it says, you husbands in the same way. Uh, So that in the same way that connects this verse with the rest of the context that we've already been studying. And uh, what does Peter mean by in the same way? He means that even though I'm speaking to a new group, I'm speaking to the husbands now, in the same way that the women submitted, in the same way that citizens were commanded, in the same way that slaves were commanded to obey, husbands too are commanded to obey. There's a connection here between uh, this verse and the rest of the surrounding context. Husbands uh, do not get a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free pass from submitting themselves to the lordship of Christ And they are also responsible to honor all people, love the brotherhood, to fear God, and to honor the king. So there's something here, again, in general principle that we all can apply in our lives. Husbands will have an account to give for the leadership of their homes and primarily for the way that they dwell with their wives and honor their wives. And we're not to lead our our homes, men, in in the same way that the Gentiles do who do not know God. Uh, there was a, an ancient Roman law uh, during this time known as Patria Potestas, or the law of a father. And uh, that gave the father of the home the ultimate power of control. He had the control over his wife, over his children, even the right to inflict capital punishment if he so chose. 
And he didn't have to answer to anybody about that. But Peter reminds us that there's another father. There's another law of a father, and it's the father in heaven, right? And even the, the father of the home has to give an answer to the father in heaven. And the father in heaven will not judge by the fallible laws of men, but by his perfect law. In First uh, Peter 1 and verse 17, it says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. There's a God who's the head above the head of the home, right? And what you do in the privacy of your own home is not hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Your your life is an open book, and one day it's going to be read, which is a terrifying thought, right? My life is going to be read, and at the top of the Lord's list is how have you honored that one flesh union? How have you treated your wife? The flesh of your flesh and the bone of your, your bones, that's not going to escape his evaluation. So let's take a look together at 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll start at verse 1 just for the sake of context. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the women, the holy women also, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, and Father, we come before you humbly, recognizing that the things that are required of us are way beyond our natural ability to do. The Father, if it's not for your Spirit at work within us, our Father, that we would fail miserably every time. And our Father, we thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, which forgives us of our sins. And our Father, that we can stand before you as uh, those who have received the righteousness of your Son. And our Father, I pray that you'd help us to obey uh, what we read, that we'd learn from what we read. And our Father, that you'd help me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter is a letter of exhortation to suffering believers. Uh, the believers that Peter was writing to in this book, they're, they're dealing with an evil and unbelieving society that turned against them. And uh, everywhere they turned, there was opposition to the message that they believed in. Every legitimate form of authority uh, became a source of persecution, a source of temptation for the believer. And the believer would have been tempted to sinfully resist and rebel against the authority, the rightful authority that was above him. But the exhortation from Peter in the second uh, second chapter in verse 12, he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, Peter says, "Don't, don't give in to these temptations. 
Don't, don't give in to the temptation to rebel, to resist, uh, to, to throw off all kinds of restraints. He says, we need to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. You have somebody that you're representing. You're representing Jesus Christ. And Peter understands what it's like to want to pick up the sword and defend Christ. You know, to pick up the sword and chop somebody's head off. But the command from Christ when Peter pulled out his sword was, put your sword back into its place, right? You don't need to be the one to try to defend me. You don't need to be the one to try to, you know, take this into your own hands. And instead of inflicting more misery on his persecutors, Jesus Christ would heal the man who came to arrest him and bless those who persecuted him. That is the example of Jesus Christ. And that's the example that we are called to imitate. And rather than resist the authority, Peter commands his readers to submit to the authority. In uh, chapter 1, he reminds his readers that there's a great day of salvation coming. Don't worry, this is not all there is. There's a great day of salvation coming and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, in verse 13, he lets us know what that kind of life looks like. The kind of life that looks to the beyond, that looks to heaven, that looks to the hope of the resurrection and the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that kind of life look like here on earth? That life looks like a life of submission. And in chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. And that started uh, this, this line of, of, of uh, uh, information, this exhortation uh, towards these believers that they were to submit to the proper authorities. Starting in chapter 2 and verse 13, that's where all of this began. There's a responsibility that we have towards the government. There's a responsibility that we have in the workplace, a responsibility that we have in the home. And it's the same kind of list that we find in other places like Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, Titus 2. But normally when we find these lists where we're given our responsibilities, there's, there's a pair. You know, there's authority and then there's submission. You know, there's, there's a pair that's often given. You know, there's a responsibility for slaves, but there's also a responsibility for masters. There's a responsibility for children, but also a responsibility for parents. Responsibility for wives, but also responsibility for the husbands. But here in 1 Peter, he focuses on only one side of that equation, the side where submission has been required. And starting in chapter 2, like I said, it starts with the government, that we're to submit to the government, but he doesn't address what is the government supposed to do. That doesn't show up. Then he focuses on, on, uh, on servants, what they're supposed to do before their masters, chapter 2 and verse 18. But he doesn't address what are the masters supposed to do. And here the assumption would have been that these are unbelieving masters in an unbelieving government. And, and I'm really not addressing them right now. I'm, I'm really trying to address this idea of those who suffer under the hands of unbelievers. So, so he's giving these, these different examples, only showing the one side of submission uh, to address those people who would have been underneath that submission to say, hey, this is how you're supposed to live when you find yourself in difficulty. But what we find in chapter 3 is that he now switches over to the husbands for the first time. This is a, a significant departure uh, from what we've already seen throughout uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Right now, he switches over to the husbands, and finally, he talks about the side of authority, and the assumption would have been that I know I'm talking to believing husbands out there. You know, that the, the government, we already know where they are. 
you know, these uh, masters who are cruel and harsh, we already know where they are. But now let me address the husbands because I know I'm talking to some husbands who are out there. And for the first time, he addresses that. And it's also important to observe here that he addresses the husbands in a different way than he addresses everybody else. In uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, citizens are told to submit uh, to the human institutions, the kings, the governors. Submit. Chapter 2 and verse 18, servants are told to be submissive to their masters. Again, submit. And uh, wives, in chapter 3 and verse 1, in the same way you wives, be submissive. Again, submit. But then when we get to the husbands, the command is, is different. The husbands are told to live with understanding and show honor to a fellow heir. And this is different than what we find in the, the rest of the list. The rest of the list focuses on what are we to do when we find ourselves under the authority of an unbeliever. But this is the one verse that says, this is how we should live if we are the believer and we do have authority. What, what should it look like when believers are the ones who have the authority? Why don't you uh, flip back to Matthew chapter 20 for a moment. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 uh, places us on the, the road to Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus has just finished telling his disciples for the third time <laughs> that he's going to be condemned, suffer, and die. If you take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 18, he speaks about this. Actually, I'll start at verse 17. Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 17. It says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. On the third day, he will be raised up. This is the, the third time that Jesus has told his disciples that he's about to die. We find that same revelation back in Matthew 16, Matthew 17. And now for the third time, Jesus says, you know, hey, hey guys, I just want to let you know that I'm on the, the road to, to death. But apparently, the disciples had something else on their minds this day. Uh, apparently, it wasn't even important enough for them to ask a follow-up question. It's like, Lord, can you, can you explain a little bit more? I mean, did, did you say crucifixion? You know, like, Lord, I'm, I'm concerned about this. Can you, can you tell me more about that? Furthest thing from their minds at this time. What James and John were most concerned about is uh, who's going to be in charge? That, that's what they're worried about. They're, they're worried about the kingdom and who's going to sit on your right and on your left. They're concerned about their positions of of power. They're absorbed with themselves. And the news about Jesus and his approaching death went in one ear and out the other. And they also get their mama, Salome, who happened to be Jesus's aunt, to ask Jesus for the greatest seats in the kingdom. Look at verse 20. It says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine, my, my, my boys, may sit one on your right and one on your left. How insensitive is this? Jesus is bearing his heart about the crucifixion, about bearing the wrath of God for the sins of the world. But all James and John can think about at this moment is uh, what seats are we going to get in the kingdom? Because seats number 11 and 12 don't look quite right. You know, we need seats number one and two. 
You know, those are the seats that we want, Jesus. Me first. Me first. Verse 24 says when the other ten disciples found out about this, that they became indignant. Verse 24. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. And you say, way to go, guys. I mean, you should be upset that these two disciples were so insensitive. You know, you should be upset about this. You should be disturbed over the the brother's request. But do you think that's why they were upset? Uh, The answer is no. (laughs) Because if uh, James and John got seats one and two, that's a seat that I don't have. You know, they're they're actually upset because they, they wanted to be in on this. Like, like, this is what we all want. They were constantly arguing amongst themselves, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That, that was their constant argument. So Jesus offers this important lesson, starting in verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself, and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great men exercise authority over them? It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When we seek to to elevate ourselves, we have more in common with the pagan unbelievers than we do with the Lord. The rulers of the, the Gentiles were known for their lust for power, the cruelty to stay in power, And in the case of uh, King Herod, uh, he was threatened even by a baby boy, so he slaughters all the the children to and under, all the boys to and under. Pharaoh, in the same kind of madness, had all the Jewish males slaughtered because of a fear of losing power. You know, we want to be in charge. We want to be in authority. And Jesus is trying to nip that kind of desire in the bud. He says, that's not the way it's to be among you. That's not how we exercise authority. The disciples are not to lord it over people, which is what he says. We don't, we don't lord it over people. You know, that, that word is with a, a prefix that means to, to come down against somebody. The idea that you can't let anybody get above you, so you got to come down against them. Got to bring you down. You know, it's like the, the crabs trying to get out of the pot. You know, can't, can't let you get out. I mean, it looks like you're too close to freedom. You know, I got to pull you down because you can't, me first, I got to get out. And everybody gets steamed, right? You know, if they would just work together, they might actually be able to escape. But no, they can't work together. It's like me, 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 got to pull you down because I've got to be first. That's the way that it is with the Gentile rulers is what Jesus says. That's how they exercise authority. And Jesus says that you haven't reached the top when everybody else is working for you and volunteering for you, you've actually reached the top when you're working for everybody else and serving everybody else from the heart. That, that is true leadership. That's true leadership. One commentator put it this way, great men are not sitting on top of lesser men, but bearing lesser men on their backs. Bearing the lesser men on their backs. I'm not sure if you ever seen one of those, uh, you know, Chinese acrobatic shows where they build like the human pyramid? Where, where, where are the strongest people? They're on the bottom. <laughs> they put the strongest people on the bottom because they can bear the weight. J.C. Ryle adds this word, among the children of this world, a person is thought to be the greatest if he has the most land, the most money, the most servants, the most rank, and the most earthly power. 
among the children of God, true greatness consists not in receiving but giving, not in selfish absorption but in imparting good to others, and not in sitting and being served but going about and serving others. That's the kind of leadership that Christians should exercise when we have a position of authority. It's a self-sacrificial, loving, compassionate authority. And that's exactly what we find it should look like when believers are in charge. Why don't you flip back to 1 Peter now, 1 Peter. Keeping that in mind, how are the husbands to exercise their authority? They're to exercise their authority like Christ, okay? Exercise their authority like Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 again, it says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. And show them honor, right? Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Uh, both the, uh, the main directives in 1 Peter 3, 7 are, the, are live with and show honor. Uh, Both of those are uh, present active participles that refer to a continuous action on the part of the husbands, and and they have an imperatival force, means that they kind of pick up the force of the command from the previous context. So this this is commanded of husbands. What are you to do? Live with your wives and show them honor. Just as we are commanded to submit to every institution for the Lord's sake, husbands are now commanded by the Lord to live with their wives and to show them honor. It's a wise and honorable practice of a godly husband. And now both of these uh, directives have, are attached to, to a phrase that explains how the direction is to be followed out. So live with your wives in an understanding way. How? As with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And honor her. How? As a fellow heir of the grace of life. And then it gives the why. So that your prayers will not be hindered. And the NASB actually does a, a better job of showing the, the parallel relationship in that verse. There's two directives, living with, showing honor, and both of those are followed by the explanations, as with someone weaker and as a fellow heir. So there's a parallel relationship there, and some translations kind of uh, uh, switch the order, but there's a, a clear parallel uh, that's shown here in the, in the NASB. So what does it mean for husbands, number one, to live with their wives and to show them honor? Number one, what does it mean to... Live with your wives. Husbands are to live in a knowledgeable way. Husbands are to live in a knowledgeable way. What does that look like? Number one, it looks like cohabitation. The word live with is a compound word. It's uh, son oikeo. Uh, oikeo means to live with. Uh, soon means uh, uh, to live. Uh, oikeo means to live and soon means with. So it's to live with. And it's specifically used of a husband and wife living together. Uh, it's, a, it's a Greek, in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, it's actually used for a husband marrying a wife and taking her into his home. And actually, the, the word uh, okeo uh, uh, comes from a, another word, oikos, which just means house. You know, so it's to build a house together. You actually find the, this word used over in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, where it says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So what we're talking about is making a home with your wife, which means that you have to live with your wife in order to make a home with your wife. At the most basic level, that means that you live under the same roof, share the same food, and sleep in the same bed. Back in uh, Exodus 21, 
In verse 10, when the rights of married women in the home were specifically given, it spoke of the provision of food, clothing, and marital rights, which is the same thing that Paul talks about over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 4, where he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And if you're living in a relationship where you're constantly depriving one another, where you're refusing to eat with one another, where you're not sharing the same room with one another, you're not following this text. That's not marriage. <laughs> That's not marriage. I've, I've heard of uh, couples who think of you know, the resources that they have as only belonging to themselves. Uh, that, that's a roommate, right? That's, that's what you do in, in college. Like, I'm tired of you drinking my milk, you know? So you get the marker out. It's like, mine, this is mine. Do not touch this. Mine yours. This is mine, right? That's what you do when you're in college. You don't want somebody taking your food. You know, this is mine and that's yours. We kind of divide it up evenly. This is my side of the room and that is your side of the room. You know, you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side. This is mine, that's you. That's, that's what you do with roommates. That's not what you do in a marriage. What in the world is that? <laughs> it's not a marriage. That's not a marriage. And there are very few exceptions to this principle of living together. Maybe a, a military deployment, maybe a business trip, but that's limited for a specific amount of time. But 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says, Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And a husband who lives knowledgeably understands this. And he'll make companionship with his wife a priority. He understands that it's not good for the man to be what? Alone. <laughs> you know, he's not trying to make a, a dash to the, to the man cave as soon as he gets home. You know, where can I escape from my wife? Where can I go that she will not hear me? Where uh, I will not be bothered. He's not trying to avoid conversation. He's not sleeping alone. He's not avoiding intimacy because there's no substitute for his wife. He makes whatever sacrifices need to be made in order to be together. And more money and a more comfortable lifestyle is not an excuse of violating this instruction. You know, I, 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 we're, we're trying to kind of like move up in the ladder so we've got to, you know, be separate. No, no, live together. That's what the text says, right? Live together. Living in a knowledgeable way looks like living together. And on the flip side, if you're not married, <laughs> do not try to follow this instruction. <laughs> and isn't it just like Satan to tempt people who are not married to live together? I mean, they're the ones who want to spend all the time. Oh, every day I want to be with you. I just want to be in your face like just constantly. No, just, just, just breathe. I just want to hear you breathe. You know what I mean? It's like just want to be together all the time. That's what people do when they're not married. And then when they are married, it's like, good grief, do you have to breathe on me? I mean, can you brush, like, brush your teeth, like, something? Like, why, right? But it's like not, the people who aren't married, they want to cohabitate. And the people who are married, they want to be distant. Go figure. It's just like Satan to try to turn everything on its head. The, the very opposite of what the Scripture calls us to do, that's what people want to do. It looks like cohabitation, number two. It looks like contemplation. And what do we mean by that? A husband is not only to live with his wife, but he's also to do so according to knowledge. He's to contemplate her. He's to think about 
her, right? You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge. It uses the the word gnosis here. It's a, a word that carries the idea of information, but it's often used of experiential knowledge, a knowledge of intimacy. For example, uh, Peter uses the same word in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, uh, where he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And it doesn't just mean gather more facts about Jesus Christ. That's not what he's saying. You know, when you're growing in the, the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's, it's talking about an experiential knowledge, that I'm knowing him in order to have a better relationship with him. That's how we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not just I'm gathering facts, but I, I'm learning more about Christ so that I may know him better, that I may enter into a deeper relationship with him. So when Peter speaks about this knowledge of your wife, there's a specific application to this. It's, it's to know about your wife so that you may know your wife, to know her better. I should care about the specific needs, desires, preferences, moods of my wife. I should care about those things. And when those things change, we'd appreciate getting a heads up, please. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, I'm trying to know you, and like yesterday you said, yesterday you, said you didn't like this, but now, now you do. Like, okay, like it's... Time to take the quiz again. Time to take it again. Just, just, just update us. Just update us, all right? But just like there was a submission to one's own husband, there should be a knowledge of one's own wife, right? Specific knowledge. I need to know you. But there's also a general knowledge that needs to be applied as well. A general understanding. General understanding of, of women and what God commands of me as a husband. I need to understand my role as a protector and a provider. I need to know what my responsibility is as a lover and a leader. I'll need to, to have general information about what does the Lord require of me. And this is where this next idea comes in of consideration. So there's, there's this uh, idea of uh, cohabitation. There's an idea of, um, what was the last word I said? Is it up here? <laughs> Contemplation, it's up there. And the last one is consideration, all right? Consideration. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And here the sparks fly, you know, all kinds of controversy over this text. This cannot mean what it says. Yes, it does. (laughs) And I don't understand why there needs to be any controversy over it because the point that Peter is making is obvious. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you that men are, generally speaking, stronger than women. Regardless of what they want to tell you in women's sports, it ain't happening, okay? It's going to destroy women's sports, okay? It's going to destroy it. You know, you let these men come in and they're benching and, you know, doing all these power lifts and everything else. And, you know, guys that that couldn't make their, their middle school track team and all of a sudden they're like first place. What in the world? Give me a break. Do, do you know why we shouldn't have like these kind of mixed sports? Because of what this verse says right here, right? She is a weaker vessel. And you may ask, you know, what, what do we mean when, when we say weaker? What, what, what do we mean by that? The text makes it abundantly clear, okay? Uh, the NASB update says someone weaker, but 
leaves it a little bit unclear. The older New American Standard says, it has a better translation, which some of you might have as well, the weaker vessel, vessel. It's, it's a word that's used for a vessel, a container, a jar, an instrument. It's the same word that Paul used back in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, where he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, referring to his body, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Same word used over in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, referring to the body and sanctification and honor. Romans 9, 21. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Doesn't he have the right to make you how he, how he wants to make you? What are we talking about? We're talking about the physical bodies or vessels that God has made for his own glory. And God has made by design one that was stronger and one that was weaker. That's God's design. It's God's design. And it says something about the kind of consideration that we should give to women. It's part of their femininity. It's part of their femininity. The phrase, since she is a woman, uh, uses a word that means female, feminine. Since she is feminine, it's the, the, doesn't use the, the normal word for woman here. The, the normal word for woman is gune. Uh, Peter uses uh, another word, gunai chaos. That's where we get our English word gynecology from. It's a reference to the feminine side, the softer side of the woman. Peter does not say that women are morally or intellectually inferior, which is how the Greeks and Romans would look at, at women. But that's not what Peter says. He says they're not weaker intellectually and morally. They're, they're weaker vessels, physically, right? Not mentally and morally weaker. They're physically weaker. And there's many examples of women who've demonstrated great moral strength and fortitude. Great moral strength. Let's listen to this account of a martyrdom that occurred in the early 3rd century A.D. Listen to this. In A.D. 202, the Roman emperor, Semptimus Servus, issued an edict making conversion to Christianity illegal. The resulting persecution was felt most severely in Carthage on the North African coast. Vibia Perpetua, a 22-year-old mother of an infant son, along with her servant girl who was eight months pregnant, was arrested for joining a class of Christian believers. Perpetua nursed her child in prison and made arrangements with her mother to take him if anything should happen. The servant girl gave birth to her child in prison. When Perpetua's father learned that she was to be thrown into the arena with wild beasts, he tried to get her out, but he was beaten instead. On the day of the execution, the men were taken first. Among them was Sartorus, the Bible class leader. He stopped at the gate for one last word of testimony with Pudens, the prison governor, who turned, later turned to Christ and became a martyr himself. The men were sent into the arena with the bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. As Sartorus was mangled by the beast, the spectator shouted, He is well baptized, mocking him as he's breathing his last. Next, Perpetua and her servant were stripped and sent into the arena to face a mad cow. The torture soon became too much for the crowd, and they cried, Enough! Enough! The women were taken to the executioner. Perpetua called out to some grieving friends, Give out the word to the brothers and sisters. Stand fast in the faith, love one another, and don't let our suffering become a stumbling block to you. The first blow of the gladiator was not sufficient. 
The young gladiator who was to execute Perpetua was inexperienced and did not kill her with the first blow. Perpetua cried out in pain. She herself took the gladiator's hand and directed the sword to her throat. And so she received the crown of martyrdom. This occurred in the year 203. 22-year-old young woman with an infant son. My daughter's 22. Strong women. Strong women. And there's many stories like this. Many stories of, of strong women. Women who died for the faith. Women who are not weaker intellectually or morally. And I would argue, I'd also argue that some of their emotions are typically stronger than men, or at least expressed in a different way than men. But Peter doesn't argue for any of that as a weakness. Peter also doesn't argue that their submission is their weakness, as I've heard some commentators say. They say that submission itself is the weakness. Then how do you explain Jesus submitting himself to the Father? Is that weakness? Is that weakness? Peter also doesn't argue that we should treat them only as if they were weaker, but they're really not. Actually, I've heard other commentators say that as well. We should treat them as if they're weaker. Well, what does it mean uh, when it also says that as heirs of the grace of life, you know, are we just supposed to treat them as if they might have it, but not that they have it? It doesn't make sense of the parallelism within the text. No, the text says that the women are weaker. Weaker than men physically. And because of that, there's a certain way that we're to treat women. We're to be considerate of them. We're to be considerate. What does that look like? You know, typically when, you know, you find a weakness in somebody, you, you try to exploit it, right? You know, like if you're, you're a boxer, you know, you're in the ring and you finally, like, oh, I know I heard him this time. Where, where do you go the next time? For the same spot, <laughs> Right? Usually that's what you do when you find a weakness. I'm going to exploit that weakness for my benefit. But that's not what Peter says. He says you're to be considerate of that weakness. You're to take that into account. You're to treat her differently because of that weakness. And what does that look like? My uh, mentor who's home with the Lord, Tom Leake, he gave a message and I jotted these down, some suggestions that he had. What does it look like? He says, don't bully her. Don't bully your wife. Don't threaten her. Don't intimidate her. Don't stare her down. Don't push her around. Don't yell at her. Don't treat her like some kind of slave. And don't you ever raise a fist to her or a hand to slap her. She should not be fearful of you. She should not be fearful of you. How do you treat a woman? You treat them with respect, right? Treat them with respect. You give them consideration. You go out of your way to make sure that they're treated in a way that's, that's tender. There's a, a former running back for the Baltimore Ravens, played for six seasons. But in 2014, during the offseason, he was indicted for assaulting his then fiance and it was caught on camera. And after the security camera footage of the incident was released to the internet, Ray Rice was released by the Ravens, suspended indefinitely by the NFL. Even though Rice successfully appealed the league's decision, the incident effectively ended his professional career as no team signed him during his time in free agency. 
I remember there were stores that uh, were taking back Ray Rice jerseys, said, I'll, I'll give you a refund for the Ray Rice jersey. And I remember wondering, would there have been that kind of controversy if Rice just got into a fight with another guy? If he just knocked out another guy, would it just been like, hey, it's just another day in the office. You know, that's what guys do, you know, got into a fight, you know, they got into an argument. He knocked him out and good for him. You know, that, that might be what, what you'd say, right? But there was something about knocking out a woman and dragging her out of the elevator that just appalled everybody. And that's right. There's something that's right about that kind of response. You don't do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't get away with that. And you know what? Feminism doesn't have an answer for that. They don't. What, what do you say if you're a feminist? What do you say? How, how do you answer for like that feeling in your heart that says, that's just not right? There's something that's wrong about that, right? And feminism would only further that kind of violence. And I've said this before, if there is an angry man who can't control his temper in your home, who threatens with violence, you don't do him or yourself or your children any favors by covering for him. Proverbs 19.19, 19, a man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Whether it's church discipline, legal action, he needs to pay the price or it will continue. So what are we to do? How are we to treat a woman? Be mindful of her needs. Be aware of her physical limitations. If she has difficulty catching up, what do you do? You wait for her, (laughs) right? If she has trouble getting something, you don't watch her struggle with it. You know, watch her trying to pick it up and you just sit back. No, what do you do? You pick it up for her, right? If she needs more sleep, you let her sleep, (laughs) right? (laughs) You watch over her. You're her protector and you don't become a danger to her. You recognize when things are just like, hey, this is just too much. I can't continue to place this on my wife. That would be inconsiderate. She can't take it. I'll take it. If you're a leader, which you are, if you're the male in the relationship, you've been given authority, but that authority that's been given to you is not for the purpose of serving yourself. It's not for serving yourself. It's to serve the people who are under your leadership. That's why you've been given authority. It's to serve, not to be served. And if you're in a relationship with somebody, if you're, you're single, you're dating somebody, and uh, this person is just gimme, 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 and they get angry when they don't get what they want, you need to, to make an exit. <laughs> do not pass go. Do not pick up $200, right? You just, just I'm out of here, you know? I, I, I don't need to be caught in this. Something's wrong here. If you're a leader, it's for the purpose of serving. It's not for the purpose of being served. And that's the kind of Christ-like leadership that we're called to demonstrate. And the world, rulers, don't model that kind of leadership. Jesus does. And he's the one who gave us his life as a ransom, right? Laid down his life for his sheep. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. 
His death was a substitution for our death. We're the ones who deserve to die. We're the ones who deserve to be punished. We're the ones who deserve the wrath of God and his eternal judgment. But Jesus took that upon himself. And his life was given in exchange for ours, right? Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Do you know what that means? He took it for us. I'll take it for you. You can't bear it. I will take it. That's the kind of leadership that Jesus demonstrated. I'll take what you can't bear. The song says, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. Proofs I see sufficient of it. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, you who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like this? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. And Jesus took the stroke for us. He took the penalty for us so that we might go free. And while we can't imitate his substitution, men, we are called to imitate his sacrifice. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. (laughs) That's what we're called to do as men. Well, we'll be back next week because there's more to say. All right. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word. My Father, we pray that you'd help us to follow the example of Jesus Christ, that we would imitate him Uh, the one who gave up his life for us, and that we would be those kinds of of leaders, that we would have men, husbands here, who would be those kinds of leaders, who would lay down their desires, lay down what they want in order to serve, that they would shoulder the burdens that their wives can't carry. Father, I pray that you'd help there to be young men like this, young men who can enter into relationships who are about serving others, and that they would even practice that service at home and service among the church. And Father, that our ladies here, our single ladies, would be wise and even looking for somebody that they would become partners with. That They would look for men who would sacrifice and serve and who put the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness before their own kingdoms. Father, I pray that that would be true in this church, Help us to live out these principles. And uh, Father, I pray that you would be glorified in all these things. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. 
Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.